Hello and welcome. I'm Sean Yeager, and this is Penny Lane, a show about the business, economics, and technology of music streaming presented by TrueStream. Along with Matt Squire, we're your hosts. To learn more about Penny Lane and past episodes, visit us at truestream.co slash podcast. That's T-R-U-S-T-R-E-A-M dot C-O slash podcast. Hello, everyone. It's November 6th, and welcome to Penny Lane. We are extremely happy to have today joining us Mike Fabio. Mike is Vice President Digital Marketing for New West Records, home to artists including John Hyatt, Ben Folds, and one of my personal favorites, All Them Witches. Over its 20 years in operations, New West has released music from dozens of diverse artists, ranging from Jason Isbell and Dwight Yoakam to Alice Cooper. Prior to New West, Mike was partner at music tech venture builder Back Porch Group and co-founder of Band Posters, a company he runs to this day. Mike was the first executive previously at Warner Brothers Records, responsible for social media and community, where he worked with and built pioneering digital campaigns with artists as diverse as Devo, Eric Clapton, and the Black Keys. Before that, Mike had roles including community manager for Google's Lunar X Prize Foundation and was a research assistant at the world-renowned MIT Media Lab. This following Mike earning both a bachelor's degree in music and a graduate degree in media arts and sciences from MIT, where, and I know Mike personally gets tired of this plug, but I can never resist, he built robotic musical instruments. Welcome, Mike Fabio. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Absolutely. Well, Mike, let's dive in. So, you know, if we look at or you reflect on your time, for example, at Warner Brothers, and we fast forward to your role running digital marketing for New West Records, what does that position, what does the role of, of owning digital marketing for an independent label entail these days? What's a, a typical day in the life for you? Well, uh, good question. So, um, you know, my role at New West uh, sort of covers a lot of different ground. Uh, everything that falls under the digital banner is sort of part of what I do. So whether that is managing relationships with our streaming partners, uh, managing parts of our digital supply chain, uh, doing digital marketing, social media, websites. Uh, a lot of our advertising falls under my purview uh, since uh, the vast majority of the advertising we do now is digital. So it kind of covers a lot of ground. Um, over the last couple of years, we've also been developing a, a pretty uh, robust uh, direct-to-consumer marketplace, um, and that has fallen under my purview as well. Um, so question, what's left? I mean, and, and I say this somewhat tongue-in-cheek, it's interesting to even have di digital as a prefix. Um, so what don't you own <laughs> within marketing? If it you, is. And, and so, you know, well, officially my title is a VP of digital strategy, but marketing certainly falls underneath that. And, and I think what you're seeing a lot of, especially at uh, much larger labels, is that the digital role is very much baked into every other role as well. Certainly our marketing people, our PR people, even our radio people all work in some sort of digital facet. Um, my role is really kind of at a, at a top level um, trying to understand um, how to develop each of those individual strategies across different departments, uh, working on ways that we can um, integrate uh, data and integrate uh, all all types of technology into our our marketing, our promotion, our PR, uh, even A and R, um, and a wide variety of other places. Um, 
So I would say that it's almost outmoded to call anything a digital job anymore since right. basically everything is digital. Interesting that you're you're connecting, not say silos, but you're connecting different departments, different functions, and, and sort of bridging uh, across. In that regard, Mike, how do you market and measure the success of a new release today, say, as compared to even as briefly as two to three years ago? How has that changed? Uh, things have changed quite a bit, and, and in a lot of ways, things haven't changed at all. Um, certainly, the, the areas that we focus on have, have shifted, um, but I think depending on the type of music and the type of fan that we're working with, um, a lot of things have stayed the same. Uh, you know, for the, for the most part, music is still music, and, and we still enjoy it uh, kind of in many of the same ways that we used to, whether that's at home, driving in a car, listening on a portable device, which, by the way, has been around for, I don't know, what, 40 years now? So, I mean, we, we, we sort of enjoy music in a lot of the same ways, but the ways that we receive music, the ways that we deliver music, the ways that we purchase music, the way that we pay for music um, has changed. Uh, certainly the ways that we market have changed. The, the rise of, of social media marketing in particular um, hasn't really changed much over the last two years, but certainly over the last 10 that I've been working in music, it has changed dramatically. Uh, you know, my team at Warner Brothers, when, when I first uh, started working there, had formerly been a street team department. And that team was largely responsible for working with college students um, and other uh, sort of regional reps, uh, handing out flyers and putting stickers on stop signs and, and kind of doing old school street marketing. So that was the so, definition of community at that time, right? Which then obviously uh, in your particular case and for the label and broadly speaking, transferred or translated over into, into digital. Exactly. At the time, kids were no longer interested in putting stickers on stop signs. They were interested in posting stuff on, on their Facebook and Twitter accounts. Not and, so in terms of um, the, the last two to three years, what would you say has been the most marked or notable change in how you take a release to market and, and ultimately measure uh, its, its success? Yeah. The short answer to that is, you know, we, we do a lot of the things the same. Advertising is still the same, but it's just in different channels. Uh, radio promotion is uh, pretty much the same as it's ever been in a lot of ways. Um, the only thing that's really different is the way the data comes back to us. So can you talk a little bit more about how, how does the data come back to you and how has that changed? Sure. So that's changed quite a bit. Um, certainly the source of data remains largely the same, whether that's Nielsen being sort of the, the, the 800 pound gorilla of a lot of music data. Um, certainly there are some other competitors now entering this space, whether that's uh, buzz angle or some of these others that pull in radio, pull in sales. And we also have uh, all sorts of other information coming from social media, coming from um, streaming data, uh, streaming data is, is near real time, depending on which service we're dealing with. Uh, and that type of data is, is invaluable. And we get, we get data from probably 30, 40 different sources that we work with almost every day. Actually, right there, I'd love to pause for a second, Mike, and ask you, help us visualize what is um, your sort of dashboard look like? You know, when you sit down in the morning, what, what are you taking in, what are you looking at to steer the ship? 
If, if if anybody out there has a good dashboard, I would love to know what that looks like. <laughs> What's the current system that you use to organize what you just described? So it's really like a, a lot of disparate pieces, honestly. There really is no good way to kind of look at it all simultaneously. We have to kind of look at it in bits and pieces. But certainly, like uh, direct-to-consumer sales information is a huge one for us. Um, that's a booming part of our business right now. Um, looking at streaming dashboards, whether that's uh, Spotify's internal tools, whether that's Apple's internal tools, um, or whether that is uh, other data that gets aggregated by our distributors and, and other uh, delivery platforms. Um, we look at these things kind of piece by piece uh, mm -hmm. and try to put them together as best we can. But like we just said, I, I think there's actually a huge opportunity for uh, some way to organize and, and combine all these different pieces of data. Interesting. And, it, and if we, um, maybe one more tip of the hat to some enterprising individual out there or team, but what are the key metrics? What, what are the two or three directions to true north that, that you use, Mike, back to that idea of a new release and, and how you measure its success? Well, I, I'm not sure that there's a single true north. I will say that we look at sales data and we look at streaming data more than just about anything. Um, whether that's uh, direct to consumer sales, whether that's uh, digital downloads, whether it's, uh, and certainly streams. Um, but each of those different pieces of data also breaks down into different other information and different things are important to different people. So, sure. you know, our, our radio promotion team might be more interested in what the Shazam numbers look like than what the sales numbers look like. Right. So it, it really just sort of depends on, on what objective you're looking to prove out. If I'm trying to prove that uh, the work I'm doing in Kansas City at, at radio is really effective, it would be extremely helpful to know that the Shazam numbers are spiking in Kansas City. Those are the kinds of data that we look at. I know you get demographic data and some general stream data, as you said, on a real-time basis. Do you get, uh, this is how many times this particular song streamed in this particular market or location? Or how, how does that work? Is that still on a 30-day um no, for us anyways, all that data is near real-time. It's, it's, if, if anything, it's delayed by 24 hours. Um, mm -hmm. And that's because we have a direct relationship with Spotify. Uh, so we deliver our music there directly. Um, we don't have a distributor in between. Um, uh -huh. Therefore, Spotify gives us access to a dashboard that shows all of those analytics. We can filter it out by geography. Uh, we can filter it out. The geography is not nearly as granular as we were just talking about, but I can... Mm -hmm. I can sort of filter it out by certain by certain other metrics. Like I can see exactly how many people in Peru are streaming the new Ron Gallo release. You have that access because you are a record label. Labels, as I understand it, are the only ones who have that access. Is that correct? So that's correct, except that um, there's also the artist dashboard, uh, which is available to any artist or their management company. Uh, and also, it, it, um, I have access to a lot of our artist dashboards as well. Most sure. of the data that's in there... Uh, is the same as what I would see in the label analytics. Uh, the only major difference is that the artist has access to their entire catalog. Uh, the mm -hmm. label has access to the releases that we have released. As, I, as I've looked at it on the Spotify for Artists dashboard, um, they show, okay, you have this many streams today, and these mm -hmm. are the areas where you're doing well. 
But as I understand it, there's no this particular song of yours streamed this many times in in this market. So the only way that you can kind of do that is you got to get clever with the dashboard a little bit and dig into an individual song uh, and break it down based on the number of streams in an individual area, as opposed to going the other way around where I don't have the ability to see what are my most popular songs in Kansas City. I can only see that young lady you're scaring me is streaming particularly well in Kansas City. I see. And is that true of your label dashboard with Spotify as well, that you have to do a little bit of math to get that conclusion? Or is that more robust? No, it's pretty much the same. File that under uh, something I've been asking Spotify uh, for for quite some time. <laughs> we're, we're being particular about it because I want to make a distinction between um, what is great metrics and great analytics versus what might be um, bona fide investor grade royalty data where you could actually make calculations based on it. As I understand it, those, um, those dashboards are, are amazing for metrics, for analytics, for research, but, but they are not, um, usable for calculating royalties. Am I correct on that? That is correct. And we don't use those data to calculate our royalties that we owe to artists and to to publishers and and whatnot. For that data, we rely on monthly statements that get sent to us from our DSPs and that we have direct relationships with, and then from our distributors as well. Thanks so much for clarifying all that. Mike, if we look at that that array of data and how you're driving the business and how you're integrating digital across all the functions. If we zoom in on streaming, understanding that it is a component, not everything, but what's your view as to how streaming is influencing or changing or otherwise causing you to steer functions or strategies or releases differently? How, how in effect is it factoring for you as compared to all the other uh, channels and components of these campaigns that you run? Uh, probably more so than just about anything in our business. Streaming is, is is shifting the way we release things, the way that we promote things, and the and the way that we um, long term look at projects as well. Uh, in particular, it it has changed the release timelines on a lot of things, and the reason I say that is because. Once upon a time, pre-ordering a record was really the most important part of an entire campaign. You do this whole campaign leading up to the release date, and then you have a post-release uh, timeline as well. Um, that has shifted dramatically. We don't need three months anymore necessarily to promote a record during a pre-order because most of the activity that happens on around a release, especially at streaming, happens after release because obviously you can't stream something until it's available. So in a lot of cases, we have dramatically shifted our timelines. Uh, Two perfect examples of that, uh, we have two Christmas records that came out last week. Um, One from Rodney Crowell, one from JD McPherson. Um, Both of these records uh, had very short timelines, about a a month of pre-release. and then we put them out the day after Halloween. Uh, even though most Christmas promotions aren't going to happen for another couple of weeks here. Uh, but the goal was that because holiday streaming is 
is so prevalent and so driven by certain new technologies like uh, voice-activated speakers, especially. Um, the goal was to have these releases available as soon as possible so that we could capitalize on as much streaming activity as we possibly could from Halloween all the way through New Year's. Um, without having the release available, we simply wouldn't be able to do any of that work because we would be trying to promote something that didn't exist yet. I can imagine that that might have put a strain. Maybe now it's just integrated into the process on resources, on timing. Has it compressed everything for you in terms of, of total project and release time? Um, not exactly. In a lot of ways, it's actually expanded the total amount of time because uh, we wind up working things far longer after release than we normally would. Uh, back in my Warner days, or even just a couple of years ago, uh, like I would say 90% of the work of any given release happens before it comes out. Now I'm working releases today that came out two years ago. Um, and what typically, if I can interrupt you, what would that uh, look like in terms of uh, that post-release two-year timeline? Really, that's a matter of making sure that certain things um, that have... Uh, behaved really well in the past are doing well again. The only times when I'm really working a release for two years is if uh, a, a, a certain song or a certain artist or a certain release has this ongoing buzz that continually leads to new opportunities. Um, I've been talking about Ron Gallo a little bit. I think he's a good example of this um, because uh, we had one runaway hit uh, at Spotify specifically uh, a song called Young Lady, You're Scaring Me that took off about six months after the album came out. Um, it coincided with a big push that we had going uh, at Terrestrial Radio, but the carryover has been about a year and a half long uh, run at Spotify and at other streaming services where the song continues to do well because it continually gets added to new playlists um, gets added to, to people's collections and, and is um, still streaming well thanks to the algorithmic playlists. So that is a definition or an example of a long tail, and it's getting longer, it sounds like. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure I would call that the long tail, but it's certainly this like long timeline. It's an exceptionally uh, different way of, of working with music. It's actually a lot more similar to the 90s and early 2000s when... Uh, timelines went much longer because there were resources being put towards other things. Usually that was radio, um, but as a radio single rises and falls, uh, we can continue to work a release long after it comes out. Um, that stopped in the early to mid-2000s when downloading became prevalent, and as that sort of sales behavior changed, uh, our release behavior changed. And we started putting out singles ahead of an album and uh, those singles were the be all end all. If they didn't perform before the album came out, then good luck after the album comes out. Right. And a lot of, a lot of my peers and a lot of people that I'm talking to in the music industry are sensing this return to form that you just described. Uh, and and really welcoming it um, because it had it had gotten very uh, sky or die there for a second. 
Totally. And where I think, uh, actually, if we want to get back to long tail, I think this is maybe the most interesting thing of, of, of what we do now, which is that I'm not just working current singles, I'm working previous singles too. Um, and right. I'm working entire catalogs in some cases. Actually, just before our call, I was looking at Ron Gallo's streaming numbers on Spotify and comparing him to one of our bigger artists, uh, Drive-By Truckers. They're no longer on the label, but we have about nine titles in our catalog from that band. Uh, and the Drive-By Truckers catalog outperforms Ron Gallo uh, every single day, uh, not because um, they have a hit, uh, and not because any single track is getting playlisted, but rather because their entire catalog is of still available and still streamable. And those nine titles compared to Ron Gallo's two uh, just outperform. So compound interest. Very much so. And, and, and you're seeing that as a strategy across uh, almost every label at this point. There's a gigantic land grab happening, uh, trying to snatch up catalog streaming for better or for worse, has truly enabled the long tail to finally become a reality in a way that I think uh, downloading never quite accomplished, um, only because of the low barrier to entry of streaming. Really, the name of the game is the bigger your catalog, the more money you make. I believe that that's true, not just for labels, but for artists as well. Was it, you know, I'm, I'm pulling this up uh, from memory and may misrecall, but was it Jay-Z's latest record that had 25 tracks? You'll, you'll probably know, Mike. It was, uh, it was Drake. So this Drake album obviously was a, a runaway smash at streaming, um, not just because he's one of the biggest artists in the entire world, um, but like you said, because he designed the album to work well at streaming. It has 25 tracks instead of 10 tracks, which means you just multiplied your total stream count by two and a half. Um, you know, it, uh, uh, I've been saying for years that uh, because 30 seconds is the uh, minimum length that you need to stream something on Spotify for it to get paid out, somebody should divide their entire album into 30 second segments. Uh, <laughs> all of a sudden you've got uh, you know, a, a, a 65 song uh, album that earns you six times as much money as your 10 song album. <laughs> I, I suddenly just envisioned a Brian Eno project. Yeah, somebody definitely will do that. <laughs> um, well, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure the streaming service would, would be very kind to that idea. But... <laughs> well, what, Mike, if, some, we, if somebody will definitely try, there, there have been a couple of uh, big stories about bands who have gamed the system. I think that there's some fun to be had with that. And I, I also think that there's, there's a lesson there too, which is the big picture is that it's almost like album enjoyment that that feeling is back for consumers with stream um, of getting into their favorite artist, diving into 10 songs, 15 songs, 25 songs, whatever it is. When, when I grew up and bought LPs, that was my mission too. It was 10 songs, 12 songs. And this was my favorite band for six months. And I think streaming is allowing people to have that feeling again. And um, in that way, it is a return to form. I wholeheartedly agree. Uh, um, I'm going to maybe reveal too much about myself here, but I've recently become uh, obsessed with professional wrestling. I, for, for better or for worse, I ignored professional wrestling for the last 30 years of my life and then all of a sudden got back into it. Um, right on. 
when I did, the first thing I did was sign up to the WWE Network. They have their own streaming service. It has hundreds of thousands of hours of content. And what did I do? I just went way deep and I just started digging, right. digging. I went straight down the rabbit hole. Um, <clears throat> I keep thinking about if I had become a music fan at 37 years old instead of a wrestling fan, what would I do with Spotify? How would I dig into the entire world's music catalog all time? Every single track you could possibly imagine is available at your fingertips. Like, where would I even start? Um, and I don't mean to get into a sort of a discovery uh, discussion here, but how, how amazing would it be to be a fan today just discovering music for the first time? Um, to be able to explore that entire world uh, with no barrier to entry, uh, there are so many free ways to, to listen to music at this point, too. Um, and no limitations. It is, it is truly a, a, a wonderful time to be a music fan. One of the things I'm curious about, Mike, is particularly given the diversity of your roster and the catalog uh, that, that you have at New West, you have artists with 30, 40 plus years of just tremendous history and releases and, and, mm -hmm. and career, and then some newer artists. You know, I recall seeing Nikki Lane for the first time three or four years ago, which is not, not brand new, but uh, she, for example, in my mind, is one who has, has uh, been on quite a rocket ride the last few years. With regard to digital and streaming, um, how differently do you uh, work with, manage um, a release, an artist uh, who is uh, perhaps evergreen or legacy versus a new emerging artist? Uh, great, great, great question. So um, one of the primary differences is that we, we strive to reach a fan wherever they want to listen to music. So... Uh, in the case of certain artists, uh, especially those with uh, older fan bases, uh, we find that streaming is not where they prefer to listen to music. Uh, in fact, you know, over the last uh, five, six years, our vinyl business has absolutely boomed. But among older demographics, our CD business is booming. Uh, so while I think uh, the major labels of the world are, are, are shouting from the rooftops that CDs are dead, I'm here to tell you they're they're most certainly not, um, and that in certain demographics that is by far the most popular form of consumption. Would you call CD in that regard a resurgence, or just that it's sustained based on these particular artists and and the the age group or demographics of their fans? Yeah, that, that's good. Uh, so it's definitely not a resurgence. I would say if you look at the overall market, CDs are definitely down. Mm -hmm. um, however, among certain uh, artists, certain fan bases, and certain demographics, I think that CDs are are holding quite steady. I think that uh, in certain other demographics, uh, CDs are totally shunned. I think that vinyl has uh, become a collector's item in certain places and, uh, and a real listening tool in others. Uh, I think that streaming has filled out a very wide swath of the audience, um, but there's no question that uh, certain artists and certain demographics perform way better on streaming. For New West in particular, like you said, we have a very diverse roster. We have to approach every single project uh, with the fans in mind. And so by understanding where those fans want to consume something uh, versus where we make things available, um, I, I think that's how we win.
as you say, it's fans first. It's it's the artist and what they need and the release and how to serve it and the fans. But it strikes me that you're in an interesting situation where you aren't at liberty to shift, to shift away from CD, to shift away from things that might otherwise put more energy into digital, into streaming because you have that diverse roster. Does that create some, some sort of tension, some friction, some interesting conversations, uh, or do you see that actually as an asset? Um, sometimes that, that creates some problems. I mean, there are certainly some situations where uh, I see streaming as a, as a key component of a, an individual campaign, and I really, really want to push this artist there, um, but maybe PR doesn't see it that way, and they're far more interested in pushing, some, I don't know, something else. So I, I think there's a there's a little bit of tension there sometimes where you, even sort of interdepartmentally, there's also some tension sometimes with artists who are very... Um, stuck on certain ideas or certain ways of, of working. Uh, we'll have an artist who uh, is completely convinced that they have a gigantic vinyl audience, um, but I have to prove to them that no, in fact, <laughs> uh, nobody buys your record on vinyl. But but the good news is the numbers sort of speak for themselves. The, the downside is that we very much want to make people happy. We want to make our fans happy. We want to make our artists happy. Uh, and sometimes we're, we're, we're doing things that aren't necessarily the best for business, even though they may be the best for the artist. With that, I'd love to, to get your take, Mike, on the Music Modernization Act. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to the degree that I know you're in, you're in the weeds every day with the operations of the business and your artists, but uh, what changes are, are you hoping for? What, what, what do you think the Music Modernization Act's effects uh, will be on, on the label and on your day-to-day? Uh, there's a couple of things that I, so um, first and foremost, I, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Music Modernization Act. I think it has been a long time coming. Um, I think that maybe it falls short in a couple other areas, but for the most part, I think this is a really good step in the right direction. This is my own personal opinion and not that of my employer. But uh, so from a label perspective, uh, the, the, the major thing that the Music Modernization Act does for us is it helps us to monetize pre-1972 recordings. Um, for New West Records, that's actually maybe not nearly as important because we simply don't have all that many recordings from pre-1972, um, although we do have some. So, so in a lot of ways, that, that part of it, um, while I see that as a, as a, as a, a great uh, win for labels and for artists, um, it's, it's not necessarily a win for all labels and all artists. Um, the, on the publishing side, so New West also runs a publishing company. Um, primarily, uh, we sign writers who are uh, also um, artists on our label. Um, but from a publishing perspective, and even to a certain extent from a label perspective, um, the ability to centralize a database uh, that has been built by the, the Music Modernization Act, while that remains to be seen how that plays out, um, I think is exactly the right step in, in, in the right direction. Um, you could easily make arguments that maybe a decentralized database or, or some other form of technology might solve these problems, but I feel like at least we're trying to solve the problem, right. um, which is something that, it, you know, for the last, uh, well, the entire history of the music <laughs> has never happened. So finally, we have uh, at least uh, a directive, if not an infrastructure, to make this work. 
Right. It's interesting, Mike, from your standpoint as New West, having both label and publishing sides. I was reading uh, this morning an article, I believe, yesterday from Billboard, looking at the potential for, given the way the rate court will change and given the way rate setting will change under the Music Modernization Act, that the position of the of the article was effectively that publishers may grab back or grab revenue from the label side. Um, I don't know if you've had a chance to sort of dig into that, if you have thoughts on it, uh, what those conversations have looked like internally, given that you represent both sides within New West. I'm, I'm not sure how that will wind up playing out. I think that's sort of the natural ebb and flow of how rate setting works, mm-hmm. uh, that there's always that kind of give and take and, and things shift over time. Um, with that said, I'm not sure that I'm worried about it per se. Uh, I feel like, uh, these are all steps in the right direction to getting people properly compensated. Again, my own personal, uh, opinion here, but writers have always, always been at the bottom of that totem pole when it comes to getting paid. Um, and I, I think this is exactly the kind of step in the right direction to making sure that that gets remedied over time. Mike, what's an uncommon or unpopular opinion you hold about the future of the music business? What, what's something that you see coming that uh, and perhaps is a bit outside the norm? Um, I'm not sure that this is unpopular opinion, but um, I don't think that streaming is the end, if you will. Um, in other words, you know, streaming is just yet another format that has taken over. We've shuffled through dozens of formats of music in the past hundred years, um, I don't believe this is the last one that we will ever see. Uh, I don't think this business model is the last one we will ever see either. And I think that's a, that's a certain distinction that I think needs to be made. Right. Uh, we're at a point today in 2018 where the average music consumer is spending $120 a year on music. And frankly, that is unprecedented that consumers themselves are spending that much money on music is is extremely unusual. Don't quote me on it, but I've seen stats that say basically at the height of the CD era in 1999, people were only spending just over $50 a year. on music. And those are people that spend money on music to begin with, which, by the way, the vast majority of the human population does not do at all. Um, so we are at this point now where people are spending money on music But I'm not sure that this current business model of consumer subscription is necessarily the be-all, end-all of of music business models. Um, I think that that could easily change whether the the subscriber, the person actually paying for those subscriptions changes. Uh, Sean, you and I long, long ago posited a question on our old podcast about whether uh, it was possible for Apple to give away Apple Music for free to every single person who has an iPhone. Um, mm-hmm. The answer is, uh, with the amount of cash they have, yeah, probably they could. Um, that doesn't mean that they will. And, and all of this just to say that I, I feel like um, we are we are all so excited that we finally found a new business model that's kind of working for us. Um, but my unpopular opinion is that this isn't the last business model we'll ever have. I think what's interesting there, and and a conversation I have a lot, um, is conflating a distribution channel or mechanism with a business model, which is what I think you've just shrewdly called out, is that sure. you know streaming is shorthand today for the business model or the predominant business model. But in fact, as you, as you note, it's, it's, it's a distribution channel. 
That's right. But it's something that we can build on. And I think we all see that. Um, for me, uh, just like you pointed out, the, the uptick in consumption and how much money people are spending on music per year, I see building on this data foundation as a way to reinvent MTV with virtual reality. There, there are so many things that we can build on top of this foundation that I think the future is very bright. And that's a perfect note to end on. I think it is very bright. Well, Mike, thanks so much again for joining us. Really appreciated the conversation. And uh, for those who want to to follow, connect, and engage with you online, where should they go? Uh, you can follow me on social media if you would like. Uh, I'm not sure why exactly you would want to do that, but go for it. <laughs> I, I rev, rev, R-E-V, R-E-V on most services. Excellent. And for New West Records? Uh, New West Records is New West Records on every service. Uh, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, etc. Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Mike, and thanks everyone for listening. We'll see you soon. Thanks for listening to this episode of Penny Lane. If you enjoyed it, and we hope you did, you can leave us a five-star rating and tell a friend to support more great conversations and episodes. If you have feedback, suggestions, or just want to say hello, we'd love to hear from you. You can reach us on Twitter at TrueStreamCo, that's at T-R-U-S-T-R-E-A-M-C-O, or send email to podcast at TrueStream.co.